I love it. I love when Spencer gets to preaching, you know, there's a little church of God in that, in that young man over here. And when that comes out, that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. All right. The church of God people, y'all not supposed to be clapping. You're supposed to be shouting. Okay. All right. There we go. There you go. I knew it. I knew you. It's, I love it because it's so close to what people were doing on this day that we celebrate all those years ago. They were shouting, oh, praise the name. They were saying, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now is what Hosanna means. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as Jesus comes riding into town on the back of a donkey on this Palm Sunday. But it wasn't the first parade of the day. You see, history tells us that on this Passover week, every year, almost every year of Roman occupation over Judea, that the Romans would make a display of power, that the governor would leave from Caesarea by the sea, basically a beach house, very large estate, and he would come across the land into Jerusalem with a tremendous display. So imagine, if you will, with me this morning, on this Palm Sunday, hundreds and hundreds of Roman cavalry riding into town. They're in their full armor that the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. They've got the breastplates on, they've got the helmets on, they've got the swords, they've got the spears. They are powerful, they are awe-inspiring, and they're coming into town with a message that on this Passover week, this holiday where all the Jews get all worked up, where Jerusalem goes from about 40,000 people to about 200,000 people in one week, and everyone's got these little ideas in their minds that someday maybe their God is going to deliver them from us, maybe their God's going to send a Messiah, and Rome is saying on this day, there's not a chance this week that Messiah is coming to town to free you. And so the people are in awe on the sides of the roads on the east side of the city as Rome displays its power. And on the west side of town, a prophet from Galilee sends two of his disciples into town. He tells them before they go, he says, you're going to go into town and you're going to find a donkey tied up And just tell the owner of the donkey that the master has need of it and bring it to me. Most likely he sent them into the upper part of the city, into the Essene quarter where he would spend Thursday night as well having his last Passover meal. And so they find someone there. They bring the donkey to him and he sits on the back of it. And what a contrast. As the humble prophet carpenter from Nazareth rides into town with his 12 followers and probably a few women walking along with the disciples as well. I would love to know who started it. I always imagine a nine-year-old because they're uninhibited. They don't care what you think. And the nine-year-old remembers a psalm from another holiday, their favorite holiday. It's my favorite holiday on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he remembers a psalm. And in that psalm are the words, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then another nine-year-old. And then they start the chorus together. I don't have a two nine-year-old voice, so you have to imagine it with me. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the parents begin from the same holiday, the same tradition, grabbing palm fronds, branches, and it begins to spread. And some of them even put their coats on the ground. They're remembering what the prophet Zechariah has said when he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Matthew picks it up and says, It's happening right now. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Our king is come. He's here. And Jesus sets the table for the Passion Week. What must Governor Pilate have thought? What must he have been thinking? All the soldiers who rode in and no one would dare speak against them. And now on the opposite side of the city, there's a roar spreading through the crowd. We're going to jump back to the Sermon on the Mount for a little bit. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in a year of studying the life of Christ And in his sermon that he gave along the coast of the Sea of Galilee on a hillside there called the Sermon on the Mount, we've called it the best sermon ever because Jesus gave it, and I dare you to call it something less. So it's the best sermon ever, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're wrapping up Matthew 5 today, and Matthew 5 is this portion where he's really giving us the Christian worldview. He's giving us the attitude that a follower of his should pursue. It starts off with the B attitudes. Billy Graham called those one time the beautiful attitudes. They're attitudes that Christians should pursue for the whole of their lives, should mark their lives. And then he challenges us to be salt and light, very much like some of the things you would have read in the Old Testament, like in Genesis 12, when he says to Abraham, you've been blessed to be a blessing. He says to all these people, don't leave the salt in the shaker, don't hide the light under a bush, but shine it out, shake it out, be salt and light. And then he begins to talk about the law and he talks about the importance of the law. And and then he talks about how he's not here to get away with it, to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And then he does this incredible thing through his teaching. He begins to raise the bar on the law. So on these 613 laws that were impossible to keep, he just raises the bar. And he raises the bar in our relationships first. And he talks about things like anger and lust and marriage and remarriage and oaths. And then today he's going to talk about his opinions, his attitudes, his teaching on retaliation and your enemies. Who is it? When I say enemy, who is the first person that comes to your mind? The first person that harasses you. The first person who comes to your mind that has mistreated you. It torments your thoughts. When you don't want to think about them, you think about them. And it feels like they're always right at the front of your mind. 
You know what you would like to do if you had the courage to do it. You know what you would like to say face-to-face. That's why there's Facebook, so you don't have to do that. You can just put it out there somewhere else. But what would Jesus have you do? Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says this. You have heard that it was said. Now remember what Pastor Brian has told us about this. This is the raise the bar statement. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He says this over and over again. Raising the bar on a law that's impossible to keep, really and truly. You see, religion gives good advice, right? Religion will make you feel a little better. Religion will give you a little bit better life. But with all of the standards that Jesus raises the bar on and makes them even more difficult to keep, more difficult to have these as part of our lives, he's telling us time and time again, I'm not here to give you good advice. I'm here for good news. That's what the word gospel means. And the good news is that the Savior has come to make you what God wants you to be. The Savior has come and it's now his perfection and not yours that you have to be concerned about. But you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, raising the bar, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, there are all kinds of things you can get into in commentaries and reading about first century Judea. And you can get into all kinds of things about what all of these little points mean that Jesus just threw out there. But I I want you to just take them at face value today just for the sake of time and so we can fly through these. Understand this. I mean, you, you get this. If someone slaps you on one side of the face, give them the other side of the face. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew for that one, okay? Just give them the other cheek. If someone insults you, say, is that the best you got? Your mama joke? I mean, give me something else. I mean, what, you know, that kind of thing. If someone slaps you, give them the other cheek. If someone sues you and tries to take something from you. The the Jews, and I know the scripture uses words like tunics and clothes, and it's not like what we're used to, but just know, undergarment, tunic, cloak, that's it. Okay, it's as simple as that. If someone tries to sue you and take the shirt off your back, give them the shirt, and the coat, and you'll be there in your underwear, and you'll be fine. That's what Jesus is saying. And the word that he uses, the way that it's translated here, he basically means do it right away. If they take your shirt, give them your coat too. Let that be your instinctive reaction. This is what he's talking about. How do you initially respond to mistreatment? If someone slaps you in the face, what do you do? Yes, slap them back. I mean, somebody's already saying it. Come on, there's a hallelujah. That was one of the Church of God people. They're excited. uh, Listen, I mean, but seriously, in the flesh, isn't that what you want to do? It's what I want to do. You slap me in the face, what am I going to do? Cry about it? No, I'm going to smack you right back. I mean, that's that's the fleshly 
response. That's the initial reaction. And Jesus is saying, first of all, in how you treat your enemies, I want you to change your response. I mean, he's talked about anger in this way. He's talked about lust in this way. He's talked about oaths in this way. I want to change the heart of the matter. You know, the Romans could force you to carry their pack a mile. By law, a Roman soldier, if they, if they were to approach you on the street and say, you have to carry my weapons, my food, if you have to carry my pack, you then have to do it for a mile, 1,000 paces. And the soldier's probably counting or making you count. And so you get to the end of the mile and then what does Jesus say to do? Walk a second mile. You see, we've got some phrases that come from this teaching. I'll give someone the shirt off my back. Good for you. I'll go the second mile for someone. I'm a second mile person. That's great. But Jesus isn't talking about doing this for your mom or your brother or your best friend. Jesus is talking about giving your best to the person who's treated you the worst. Jesus is talking about going the extra mile for someone who has hurt you. Be generous to someone you don't think deserves it. Listen, Jesus's plan is never retaliation. It's reconciliation. Retaliation is our initial response. It's what we want to do naturally. But Jesus is teaching reconciliation, a change of mind, a change of heart. But it begs a question that I want to come back to. Who does this apply to in your life? Who is your enemy? You say, come on, I don't want to come to church and think about those people, all right? I just came here to praise the name and I don't need to do that right now, okay? But to apply this teaching, this difficult teaching on relationships from the Sermon on the Mount, from the Savior himself, who is your enemy? Some of you, you're divorced. You instantly think of your ex. I get it. I know. I mean, I've never been divorced. My parents are divorced, but I, I, I get it. When you think about enemy, and you hear Jesus say, love your enemies, you're thinking, I've already loved this person, and they trampled on it. Who's your enemy? For some of you, it's a, sad to say, but it's a parent or an aunt, or uncle, or grandparent, or, or maybe someone that abused you. They hurt you. And man, if they did it when you were smaller, they did it when you were not the person you are today, and if you had a chance, you'd show them who's boss now. Some of you are thinking of a business partner, an ex-business partner, who left you holding the bag. They left you with tens of thousands of dollars of debt and unfulfilled promises and commitments. When Jesus is talking about enemies, who goes through your mind? Some of you may have been a part of a friend group, and this isn't like just for teenagers, it happens there, but for a lot of adults, we don't move past middle school and high school and how we treat one another, unfortunately. And so some of you may be thinking about, you were part of a friend group at one point and Then you discover they were actually gossiping about you. They were mocking you. They were using you. 
And there's someone who's part of that group who stabbed you in the back. And now because of that person, you're isolated, alone, ashamed. You feel guilt and you don't even know why. Even as you think of them, it makes you want to shake your head, grit your teeth, ball up your fist. And Jesus says we have to get to the point where our reactions, our thoughts towards those people are completely different. I mean, when people are enemies, they can get into vicious cycles of of gossip and slander and anger. And the only way it changes is when somebody decides, I'm going to make the change in this. I'm, I'm going to make an exchange in this. And I'm going to, to go in from the direction I was going in. I'm going to make a 180 and I'm going to start treating and thinking about this person completely different. That's the only way it works. This would be a much easier teaching. If Jesus says, when it comes to your enemies, just hate them less. Just dislike them a little less. And then we could all go, okay, slap each other high five, see you at Easter. This is going to be awesome. Just hate them a little less. Jesus would go on to say, it's easy to love your neighbor, especially the way he understood at this point in his teaching. He's going to raise the bar on that later. It's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to be sweet to those who are going to be sweet to you, but it is entirely different to show kindness, graciousness, courtesy, and even love to those who have abused you, abandoned you, mistreated you, hurt you, to those who have treated you the worst. He's not just raising the bar on the law. He's raising the bar on a specific proverb as well. Proverbs 25 verse 21 says this, if your enemy is hungry, Listen to this. Give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. That's the part I wanted to get to. And the Lord will reward you. But before I'm heaping coals with my kindness, if he's hungry, I'm supposed to give him to eat, something to eat. If he's thirsty, something to drink. If you will humble yourself, the scripture says, it will humble your enemy and God will exalt you. And in Proverbs, it's described in the most commonplace, meaningful of settings. When it comes to talking about your enemy, the picture is of a table. It's a table. I mean, think about your best spread, whatever it is. For me, I'm a breakfast person, okay? Because breakfast is like a reason for bacon and grits. And so I'm all good as long as I can have those things Some of you are big green egg people. I don't know why you want to take that long to get to the food, but you can do that if you want. Uh, But what is your best spread? Oh, the family's coming over. I don't know if any of you do Easter meals. Maybe that's what you're looking forward to that next weekend. You're kind of scheduling your worship around that or whatever it is. You got people coming in from out of town or you're going to grandma's house and there's a casserole that grandma does that is awesome and you're hoping to get the recipe for that one day or, or whatever it might be. Now let's take it another step further. It's not just all the people who you love who are at the table. There's a seat right next to you and here they come. You know who it is. Oh, you did not want them to be a part of this. This meal is not for you. This is my time. This is, these are my people. You were my people. You're not anymore. You've hurt me so bad that when you walk in the room, it takes my breath away. You can sit here. Sit with me. 
There's a rabbinic phrase from around the first century that goes like this. If your enemy rises up early in the morning to kill you and show up to your house hungry and thirsty, you should fix them a meal. <laughs> I, can I poison the meal? I mean, what is the... Seriously. If they show up and we know that their intent is to harm us just as they have harmed us before, we're supposed to create a spread for them at the table. How am I supposed to love my enemies? Here it is. Change your initial reaction. Change the way you're thinking about them. Change the way that you feel about them. How do I do that? Serve them, love them, and prepare to give them your very best. According to Jesus. That's how you love your enemy. Well, what is going to give me the ability to do that? Your favorite psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now watch this. You, God. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Why, how can I love my enemies and give them a seat at the table? Because God Almighty has already done it for me. God, the cosmic caterer, is now setting the table. I thought my grits were good. Now we're on a whole nother level. Truly. What gives me the ability to treat my enemies the way Jesus has said that I should be treating them? How can I possibly do that? Because when I was at my worst, God Almighty gave me his son. He gave me the very best. And he has prepared a table before me. Picture them now. You didn't let them sit down yet because when they walked in the room, you were mad. So picture it now. Now God has set the table in your presence and in theirs. And they're watching. They're watching your response. They're watching what God is giving you. Can you picture it? One author says, Your enemies are in shock. They were sure God was going to strike you down for your failures. They were prepared to stand over you, gloating as you fell into destruction. Yet now they have been ordered to watch as you feast on food served by God himself. They're forced to observe how the Lord serves you, feeds you, and anoints you with the oil of joy and Gladness. He prepares a a table for us. The language is literally, he arranges our steps. He arranges our circumstances in the presence of our enemies. 
how you treat them is in direct correlation to what you believe about the sovereignty of God. How you treat negative circumstances, negative and evil people, your response in that moment will be a demonstration of your faith. It will be a demonstration to them and to your friends who are watching of what you believe about the sovereignty of God. Don't allow an enemy or someone who has mistreated you, don't allow them to cheapen the work of God in your life, but say nothing can separate me from his love. I'm all in here. You're free to watch as God has prepared the table or you are welcome to sit down. He has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. David not only wrote the Psalm, he lived it out. You see, prior to David becoming king, the first king of Israel, Saul, initially liked David. You like him when he kills Goliath. And then when people start cheering that he killed Goliath, you decide you can't have this little guy on the scene anymore and you want to kill him. And then he grows into manhood and he's got even more favor and more people and, and he's truly an enemy. He's pursued David all over the Judean wilderness. He's, he's tried to kill him. They've got this awful relationship. And then God removes Saul. God took care of David's enemy. David didn't have to. And so years later, and there's so much to this story, but years later, in 2 Samuel 9, there's a beautiful picture of grace. David is sitting around and he says, is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? Why would he do that? For Jonathan's sake, the king's son happened to be David's closest friend. Is there anyone left from the house of Saul? By the way, if anyone is left, according to law, David had every right to kill them, to remove them on the scene, from the scene. So he calls in one of the servants of Saul, who's still lucky to be alive, by the way. He says, is there anyone? He says, well, yes, there was a, when you became king, there was a, an infant. who, in the rush to get out of the kingdom, he was dropped Both his ankles were broken. He's crippled in both legs. He's in a place of desolation now, far away from here. David said, go get him. And he goes to get him and the little crippled boy, young man now, Mephibosheth, is brought into the presence of the king. And look at what happens in the presence of the king. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and says to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. My enemy's grandson will always eat at my table. And so my enemy's grandson lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. David knew what it meant to prepare a table in the presence of an enemy. In fact, if you go on and read the story of David later on, there's even an episode between Ziba and Mephibosheth. You can't tell what's up, what's going on. It seems like they're both still trying to angle. They're both still considering betrayal of the king. They were enemies of the king. This little crippled boy who had everything taken away from him, he still had rights to the throne. David 
could have killed him any time he wanted. Instead, he made him a prince and gave him a seat at the table. Jesus did the very same thing. Luke chapter 22 brings us to Thursday night of the Passion Week. And in that upper room in the upper part of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is with his disciples having Passover for the last time. Luke 22 says, When the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. It's the Last Supper. And I know you've seen da Vinci's painting with Jesus in the middle. Hair's perfect. He's just had a shower. Everything's awesome. On this night of his betrayal, this heavy, weighty night, But da Vinci did not get the seating order correct. There's actually a very different picture. I want you to see this one and then this one. We know from tradition and from the Gospels where four of the men were sitting that night that Jesus took the Last Supper with his disciples. They're sitting at this U-shaped table They would have been laying on their left side and reaching to grab the Passover meal with their right hand. And so by how they took the meal, we can tell a few things. By some things that are mentioned in different gospels, we can tell who's sitting where. Jesus is sitting there in the middle on the left-hand side. We know that John was sitting on his right because John was able to lean into Jesus's chest. We know where Peter was sitting. See across the way there? Peter, interestingly enough, is sitting in the seat of the servant. You see, someone was going to be assigned every time to serve everyone else. So when Jesus stands up and wraps a cloak around him and takes a towel and a basin to wash everyone's feet and to be everyone's servant. And Peter, if you remember in John 13, throws a hissy fit. If you remember, the reason for that is because Jesus just took Peter's job. Peter was supposed to serve because the least will be the greatest. The servant among you will be the greatest. And Peter is in the seat of the servant and Jesus is not letting him do it. But in all of these meals... There was a place of honor. And we know who was sitting at the place of honor because he would dip in the same bowl as Jesus at a key moment in the meal. A table in the presence of my enemies. A table for my betrayer. In the place of honor is Judas. Even up to the last moment, Jesus' heart towards him is completely different than mine typically is. Jesus is serving him. Jesus is loving him. Jesus is offering him the very best. And then they get to the point in the meal where Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. 
And Peter, the scripture tells us that Peter is sitting across from John and says to John, hey, you're sitting right there. Ask him who the betrayer is. And in the middle of all this commotion that's created when Jesus has said this, John chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus answers and says this. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, watch, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. How did Jesus respond in the presence of his enemy? We all have enemies. Enemies in the flesh, Judas is sitting there. Enemies we cannot see with our eyes, principalities, powers in the air. Satan himself And for Jesus on this night of his betrayal, someone he's known from eternity past has personally walked into the room. And yet Jesus serves, he loves, and he offers the very best. That's how you treat your enemies. It's what God has done for us. Romans chapter five says, if when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son. Now that we're at our best, just think of our lives, how our lives will expand and deepen by means of this resurrection life. How could Jesus treat them that way on this particular night? Because he knew that ultimately he would go to the cross, that the Father would give him the power to rise up from the grave, and that the cross and God the Father himself will have the final word. That's how you sit in the presence of your enemies. That's how you can do it. You say, I don't want to sit in their presence. I don't want to serve them. I don't want to offer them the very best. I don't want to love them in this way. It's exactly what God has done for us. Psalm 130, one of my favorites and a couple of words that have been going through my head now for the last year, year and a half or more, this really gripped hold of me. Psalm 130 says this, if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, our sins, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. In verse 7, he says this. For with the Lord, there is loving kindness. And with him, there is abundant redemption. Redemption would be enough. Redemption pays the bill for our reconciliation. To bring us back into right standing with God. Redemption pays the bill for our forgiveness. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us abundant redemption. Isaiah 55 says he will abundantly pardon. In John 10, 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. He came when we were at our very worst, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came when we were at our very worst. He offered us his very best. He offered us his life that we might extend it to others. 
Would you stand with me for just a moment? Please don't leave. Just stay where you are. I hate to do this to you, but one last time. Think about them. Think about the one who hurts you so badly. I'm so sorry. God is so sorry. Jesus weeps with you. He grieves with you. He hurts with you. But even when you were at your worst, and you have had your moments, by the way, and so have I, he gave us the very best. And now he's set the table for the Passion Week. There's still a few palm fronds on the road. A couple of the kids left their coats. And he's standing on the Temple Mount. And he can look over. Physically, he can see a lot of this, but in his mind's eye, I know he can. He can see the governor's residence, Pilate. He knows what's going to happen there as he looks over the mocking, the beating. His eyes continue to scan the city. You know, from here, if you would walk around just a little bit, if you look right over there outside the wall, there's a hill that if you use just a little bit of imagination, it looks like there's a skull in the hill. They call it Golgotha. That's where the cross will be. As he continues to scan the city, down in the valley over there, there's a a grove of olive trees. He's going to pray and plead in that spot, God, let this cup pass from me. All things are possible for you. You can do this another way. And in the most powerful words, I think any of us can pray, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. If you continue to scan up the valley on the hillside over there, 47 days from now, he's going to ascend back to the presence of God the Father. And oh, praise the name, because one day he's coming back to that very same hill to rule and reign forevermore. He he has set the table for us. He has set the table for them. And so church, this week, all together, let's set the table for Northwest Atlanta. Let's set the table for the 357,000 within a 20-minute drive time. Let's set the table for the names on the wall. If you haven't written the name on the wall yet, you can do that. In fact, leaving out of here today, you may want to go to the wall. You You may just want to put a hand on the wall and say, God, bring them. God, bring them. May they hear your gospel clearly. May they receive it in their hearts. May they not think that we're here to give them good advice to make their life a little better. May they understand that we're here for good news that they need a savior and he's come, he's died and he's risen again.